0: Okay, turn in your Bibles now to uh, first, Second Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we've left off from the last time we were together. And chapter 6 is, uh, well, it's a chapter break, but there's not really any break in Paul's line of thought. It's sort of a, an unfortunate, I guess, uh, division that the chapter breaks sometimes give us it kind of gives you the impression that you're starting something different in the story that you're reading. But in this case, it's not really Paul's fault. Of course, you all know that the chapters and verses came much later after the letters were published into the Word of God as they are. They were given chapter and verse by others later on. And it just happened to be that this was a convenient place for them to mark the sixth chapter to begin, probably because it kept a certain degree of uniformity in terms of length of uh, uh, verses that they were uh, putting together. So uh, keep that in mind as we begin chapter 6. It's actually a continuation of what Paul has been saying in chapter 5 where he said in verse 20 of chapter 5, now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And now in chapter 6, he's going to explain what he's coming toward with regard to being reconciled. He says there in verse 1 of chapter 6, "...we then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation." So Paul is saying in these first few verses, again in continuation of what he was saying in chapter 5, asking them to make sure that they are not only that they're saved, but they're doing something to prove their salvation to others. Uh, Being reconciled to God is, is what Paul is saying is necessary for everyone who is to receive the salvation of God has offered. You know, the reconciliation that he is suggesting very strongly here is that everyone who has considered the things that God has said has to come to a decision to recognize that they are in enmity with God. In other words, they are enemies of God, and that's what Paul tells us was our condition before we were saved, and when we receive Christ as our Savior, then we are then becoming reconciled with God as it pertains to our sinful nature. And, of course, that is a wonderful blessing. But Paul is saying it goes further than that, and it certainly is true. It isn't just that you are saved and you're done with it. You have to live your life um, in agreement with God And he's going to be talking about some of that as well, but he's saying here that in order for you to be reconciled with God, you need to understand that you're making a commitment to God, and you are to work together, not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate your salvation to others. So he says here that it's necessary that we become all of us workers together Uh, with God, and we plead with you, the Corinthian church, and with you, the Church of Safe Harbor Church, to receive the grace of God not in vain, in emptiness. It has to have some kind of meat attached to it. It has to be something that is tangible. And that's why Paul says, quoting Isaiah chapter 48, Or rather, chapter 49 of Isaiah, he says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. God wants to help us to do His will. And He offers that help as as a consequence to our having become children of God, saved by His grace. He says elsewhere that we are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling. That's found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And he tells us that because he wants us not to work in order to be saved, but work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, because it is something that we must recognize according to what the Word of God tells us, that there are consequences if we do not do things that are pleasing to him. And it has to do with rewards, which is what he talked about in chapter 5 and in previous portions of the 1st and 2nd Corinthians where he talked about the judgment seat of Christ that we are going to be standing before the Lord and giving an account of everything that we have done in our body, whether good or bad. So it's all in a consequential, uh, conditional kind of thing that Paul is uh, emphasizing here with regard to not our salvation, but our rewards. And again, he says, now that we know that we are saved, we should uh, work together to demonstrate that salvation so that our faith in God won't be found to be in vain or empty. James puts it in a very simple way. He says, faith without works is dead. And that's important for us to realize that God wants us to do good things on his behalf. Um, we to shine the light of Christ so that men will see. We're not to hide our faith under a bushel. Jesus warned us against that. So Paul is just in agreement with what Jesus said, and the other writers of the Word of God have declared that God expects for us to be faithful doers of the Word and not hearers only. In verse 3, he continues and says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. Now he goes on to say from that that, His ministry was proven not by his great oratory skill or his acceptance by all of the people that have ever heard him preach. That has nothing to do with what Paul considers to be evidence of his ministry to God. He says in verse 4, "...in all things we commend ourselves as ministers to God, in much patience, in tribulation, in needs, in distresses, in stripes." in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. That's not exactly what I would call pleasantry. Paul is saying that it's a very, very difficult road that he has been on. As a follower of Christ, he has been beaten. He has been treated by many people wrongly. He's been stoned, he's been whipped, he's he's suffered great loss. And in all of that, it as far as he is concerned, is proof of his being a true minister of God. What a remarkable statement this man is making. And it's not necessarily something that we all should expect in our lives, but Paul did experience all of those kinds of things that he's described in this passage. And it's really an amazing thing when you look at Paul's life. He's going to say a little bit later on in Second Corinthians, in greater detail about some of the things that he's had to suffer. It's not that we all will have to suffer in that same way, but we should never use our sufferings as a complaint to God, but rather in giving thanks to God for the fact that he has allowed us to suffer for his sake. Remember, when the apostles were first believers. The Holy Spirit had come down. And in Jerusalem, they were preaching the Word of God boldly, and many people were getting saved. And then they were brought before the Sanhedrin. They were put in prison. They were beaten. And the uh, leaders of the Sanhedrin said, warning them, don't say anything more about this Jesus. But they went out after having heard that and and responded by saying, as far as we're concerned, we're following God, and we're going to obey God rather than men. And they went out and proclaimed again the word of God with great boldness, saying to the Lord, thank you, O Lord, that you would allow us to suffer these things on your behalf. What a great privilege it is to suffer for Christ. But it's not something that any of us would really, I think, want to experience necessarily, unless it were something that would lead others into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then, you know, perhaps the suffering wouldn't be such a hard thing to endure. Paul said in Philippians again that he desired to experience both the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering. That's an amazing statement that Paul has made. And that's why Paul was able to say such things as I press on to the high mark of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul had no problem with this issue that he had to almost daily experience some form of trouble, some kind of opposition. A lot of times it was from Jews who were coming after him, trying to persuade the people that Paul was not telling them the truth, that they had to uh, obey the Mosaic law in order to be saved. And Paul was saying, no, that's absolutely wrong. And his opposition to the Jews always seemed to result in persecution. Paul did suffer greatly in stripes and imprisonments and tumults and labors, but he did it gladly Take note of the fact that he continues in verse 6 in purity, in knowledge, in long-suffering, in kindness by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. So Paul, in enduring those hardships, also had the great blessing of God's provision his purity, holiness, and the knowledge that had been given to him by the Holy Spirit. Although he was having to deal with all kinds of issues, he recognized that the Spirit of God was in him and leading him in such a way so that he could, in spite of all those hardships, express the very love of God through his willingness to accept that which was happening in his life. Paul tells us later on in this letter in 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. We'll get to that uh, sometime in the near future. But he says in chapter 10, verse 4 of this great letter, uh, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And Paul is saying that the weapons that God has provided us are weapons that we are to use to bring glory to God in our ministry for God. And in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul goes on to talk about that weaponry in great detail, and I'd like you to turn there with me. It's a very familiar verse of, verses of Scripture that we hopefully know fairly well by now as believers, but it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. And uh, we'll look at uh, the things that Paul says about this weaponry, this armor of God, beginning with verse 10 of chapter 6, where he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. See, Paul is saying it's so important for every believer to be clothed with the armor of God. And I'd like to focus on two components of that armor because Paul here in Second Corinthians alludes to those two pieces of armor by saying in this passage that we just read uh, in uh, verse 7, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor or weapons of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. Now, if you're thinking of what Paul described in Ephesians chapter 6 as a whole armor of God, you may remember that In the one hand, the Christian is to carry the sword of the Spirit. In the other hand, the Christian is to carry the shield of faith. The shield is a defensive weapon. Paul tells us in Ephesians that that shield protects us from the fiery darts that the enemy sends our way. And the sword of the Spirit is the power of God, as Paul describes here in this passage that we've been looking at, by the word of truth, by the power of God. In verse 7 again, by the armor or the weapons of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. These two components of the weaponry that God provides us are essential. We need that shield of faith, and we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, both an offensive and a defensive a weaponry that the Lord provides. And that's why when Paul says again later on in this, uh, verse, uh, this letter of Second Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that's the weaponry that he's talking about. It's not fleshly, it is a spiritual weaponry. But the sword of the Spirit is so important for us. And elsewhere, the sword is referred to uh, in a different sense, with regard to the very word of God, and of course the Spirit of God empowers us and and teaches us the very word of God, and in that sense the sword is a, a very powerful uh, piece or component of the weaponry that we have, because as the word of God it is sharper than any two-edged sword. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter twelve verse four, the The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and is mighty and is capable, able to divide even to the very bone and marrow of the soul. It is so essentially important to recognize the fact that Paul, and in Hebrews, if it is Paul that wrote that as well, the emphasis is on the weaponry being a spiritual rather than a physical weaponry. It is intended that we use that in a very, very proper fashion. We're not to consider the, the, the Word of God or the power of God by the shield and the sword that we hold as being weapons that we can use in any physical sense against physical enemies, even though Paul, in this passage, is talking about physical experiences. But it's, in the spirit that he battles against those physical entities. It's not that he uh, seeks to engage in warfare against anybody. He wants to save them. He wants to pray for them. He wants to draw them to, 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 to the Lord through his conviction of the spirit of God that is leading him as he conveys the truth of God so that they would hear and understand and that they would hopefully come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's how effective the weaponry is to be, but it's a spiritual battle, not a physical battle. Well, he goes on to say in chapter 6 again of Second Corinthians, now back in that great book, and in verse 8 he says, By honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, by, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened, yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Taking those pairs of very different opposing thoughts, first, by honor and dishonor, he was one who was not seeking any honor, and in fact he was being dishonored by even many of the Corinthian church who uh, thought that he was not really a very helpful minister in the in the gospel and, and that he was not trustworthy and, and there were others who were better orators than him he 's not arguing whether he 's a better orator or not he 's just saying that I am a minister of God because I've been willing to suffer all of these things and I continue to do so because I know what God has called me to do. And his faithfulness to that calling in spite of all of those things are in his mind and it should be in ours as well proof that he indeed is a true apostle of the living God. He was honored by the Lord but he received a great deal of dishonor among men. Evil reports, or good reports, there were some churches that thought very highly of Paul, like the Philippian church, and Paul thought very highly of them. Paul never thought lowly of anyone, or he never thought more highly of himself than he ought. In fact, he said that that is something that none of us should ever do. But he was willing to accept all of the very contrary things that are described here. Uh, he was perceived by some as a deceiver, yet he spoke the truth. He was perceived as just an unknown individual that just was trying to make himself well-known by, by propagating all of the things that he was trying to say. Well, that's not the case. But he was also very well-known, both among the believers and also among the Jews who were trying to fight against him. So Paul is saying all of these things Are his own experience in his ministry to the churches. And he again declares himself to be a very minister of God because he's been willing to do all of those things in spite of all of the opposition, in spite of all the dangers. Known and yet unknown. Dying and behold we live. Chastened but yet not killed. Paul is saying, I am ready to die if that is the case, if that is what God wants for me to do. But I've got a work that God has put me uh, in this place at this time to accomplish. And I will do all my best to accomplish that which God has called me to do. Note in chapter uh, 6, verse 10, Paul says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I kind of like that passage right here in this beginning of chapter 6, verse 10, Paul is saying, as he says elsewhere, in everything, give thanks. Rejoice. Again I say, rejoice. Be glad in what God has done through you and is doing through you. Be rejoicing in everything. Now that doesn't mean that you're going to be happy doing some of those things. Sometimes God brings us into places where It's not a matter of whether we're happy or not and we should recognize there's a difference between happiness and joyfulness. The happiness is an external. I'm happy, I feel good about things because things are going my way. And I have great joy when things are going my way. But there's a sense with God's Word that leads me to believe that even when things aren't going well for me, I'm not happy on the outside, I'm miserable, I'm feeling very, very ill about certain situations in my life, but yet I can have that joy unspeakable and full of glory that brings a rest and peace to my soul, that joyfulness that comes from within. And that joyfulness supersedes the terrible feelings of of oppression that surround me sometimes, and And I am lifted up out of the miry clay and I'm put upon a solid rock and I enjoy the benefits that God has given to me and I'm rejoicing in those things, those promises of God. Yes, we can have very difficult times, troubles that we'll have to face, but in all of that, in the midst of that, we can still have the joy of the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying, even though he's experienced great sorrow. In that sorrow, he is still yet able, in that sorrow, to rejoice as being poor and yet making many rich. Paul knew, no matter what his estate, to be content in all things. Paul said that there were times when I've been experiencing plenty, and there are times when I've experienced great lack of everything, including food. Paul has had experiences in his life where he has been on both the side of being in very, very deep despair, and on the other end of being in great, wonderful, blessed provision. And Paul says, in all of that, no matter where between those two uh, swings of the pendulum I may find myself on any given day, I am content and I am satisfied and I am blessed beyond measure because I know that I am His, and He will take me through every circumstance and bring me through it in victory because I am his child. So Paul has given us this list of things that any number of times we might fall into those kinds of issues that he had to find in his own life. But in going through those as an example, he has shown us that it can be done and you can come through it with victory, with joy, with peace, because his example is not based on his Abilities, his strength, it's based on one thing only, God's grace. Remember when Paul, in, well, in this great book of Second Corinthians, he's going to be talking about that. But he experienced uh, some very, very difficult things. But one of the things that was troubling him almost all the time was what he referred to as a thorn in the flesh. Not told what that thorn in the flesh was. We can speculate about it, but uh, the fact is there was something going on and he said he was being buffeted by this thorn in the flesh and it was because of Satan's involvement. And he sought the Lord, he said, three times to deliver him from this thorn in the flesh. And Jesus answered Paul in a very remarkable and wonderful way. He didn't say, You got it, Paul. I'll deliver you from that. No, on the other hand, Jesus simply said, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. And when Jesus told the Apostle Paul about his sufficiency of grace in no matter what he had to endure, Paul realized, that's all I need. His grace is indeed sufficient for us. And then Paul went on to say, after that revelation by Jesus, that when I am weak then he is strong. And that's good enough for me. Paul is saying, in all this trouble, and all of these things that I've had to endure, I am rejoicing that God has given me this great blessing. That's why he says in verse 11, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you, Our heart is wide open. I've revealed, he says, everything to you. I've opened my heart. I'm an open book before you. You know what I have said is from my heart. I have spoken truth to you. This is a great appeal. And note that he begins again this verse 11 with, O Corinthians, can you feel the passion in his voice as he wrote those words? Only two other places did Paul uh, reference the particular group of individuals within the letter, like this. In Philippians, he commended the Philippians. He said, oh, Philippians, you're such a wonderful people. You've done so much for me. In Galatia, on the other hand, he said, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Because they were being misled by the Judaizers. Now, here in Corinth, Paul is saying, oh, Corinthians, I've opened myself up to you. Let your hearts be open to me as my heart is open to you. That's what he's saying here. Verse 11 again says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You were not restricted by us, but you were restricted by your own affections. Their response to him was based upon their misinterpreting what he, was having, what he had done or had not done with regard to the Corinthian church. They were misleading the people of the Corinthian church by those who were saying, Paul is not to be trusted. And there were some who were following that. So there are, again, in chapter 11, we'll see that Paul addresses these evil men who are really trying to put Paul in a place of defensiveness. And again, that's why we're in this section of the letter of Second Corinthians from Chapter 2 until chapter 7, Paul's giving this defense of himself in a very wonderful way. It opens up to us Paul's heart, and I'm glad that he wrote this to the Corinthian church. And oh, how it should be for every pastor to have this kind of heart. I pray for that kind of heart, and I pray that it would be a heart that would be seen and received by all who hear. Verse 13 says, Now in return for the same, if you are willing to express your love for me as I have expressed my love for you, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now here in verse 14, Paul is wrapping up what he's been saying and then opening up a brand new line of thought here with regard to the Corinthians because they were more apt to pretty much accept any philosophy that came their way. It was a Greek culture, and that's what they were typically likely to do when they weren't believers. But now that they are believers, Paul is saying, look, you've got to understand that you are a unique people. Peter puts it this way, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We're separate from the world. Paul tells us that also everywhere that we go, we should be separate from the world. He said that in 1 Corinthians, he said that in earlier chapters in this great book. But he wants them to understand that that separateness doesn't mean that we're to remove ourselves from the world, we can't do that. But we cannot be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now that is used a lot of times and it's appropriate to be used with regard to the marriage relationship. Of course, the marriage relationship is a very special union, a relationship between a man and a woman, a bond that should be between a man and a woman based upon their faith in God, and in their faith in God they have come together and they are united, and they shouldn't be of a different mindset with regard to the things of God. That would definitely qualify as a relationship that was an unequally yoked relationship. The yoking of the plow uh, animals, typically oxen, it could have been other things, but mostly oxen they would use for the plowing of their fields. And sometimes when they were wealthy enough, they would have two oxen pulling the yoke upon those two oxen and the yoke would have to be built in such a way as to not cause any chafing between the two animals. Now, the two animals might not be of equal size or weight and so the maker of the yoke would have to take into account the differences between those two animals in order to make a yoke that fit them properly. But if you take an oxen and a donkey, well, you couldn't really... Put those two together, could you? They're they're just not like at all in any way. And that there wouldn't be any kind of a yoke that could be manufactured that would make those two animals pull the plow in the same way, at the same speed, in the same direction. It's just not very possible at all. That's this unequally yoked that he's talking about. That The differences between individuals that are not like-minded in faith cannot work together, cannot survive a relationship, whether it's a marriage relationship or a business relationship or any other kind of relationship. We can be friends with people who are not Christians. We're not saying that. But we shouldn't go to those places where they want to go. If they want to take you to the bar to have a few beers, don't condescend to that request. Just tell them that you are no longer in a place where you feel right to do such things because you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And He's leading you down a different path than you once were willing to go. Now, you may lose friendships as a result of that, but that's really the position that we need to take. Take a stand for Jesus in every relationship. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he goes on to ask several rhetorical questions here to kind of prove his point that it's not a good thing. He says in verse 14, the second half of verse 14, he begins that rhetorical questions with, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? It has no fellowship. There can be no fellowship with righteousness and lawlessness. The two unequal things. What about what communion has light with darkness? You go into a room that is dark and you flip the switch, the light comes on. Now, when the light comes on, darkness is no longer there. It's light. You can't have both light and darkness occupying the same room at the same time. You can have different shades of light, but you can't have an obvious light section in this section of the room and the other half of the room total darkness. It doesn't happen. You know that from a physical point of view. It's true. What re, re, what communion has light with darkness? Then, first fifteen continues. He says, "What accord has Christ with Belial?" Now, Belial here is a worthless person, but it's also a reference to Satan. Belial is used in the New Testament to refer to as Satan, and Paul is saying, "What accord? What?" Similarities, similarities are there between Christ and Satan. There are none. So, these are very, very stark contrasts. What part has a believer with an unbeliever? Paul is saying, look, you can't really develop a relationship with somebody who is not a believer if you are a believer and expect that unbeliever to just agree with everything you say. There will always be conflict. Verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Another example that Paul is giving, the temple of God is a holy place, and the places of idol worship were very unholy places from a Christian perspective. Paul said everywhere he went, they were temples to idols, and they were an abomination to God. Paul wanted every believer to turn from the worship of those idols to the living God instead. And that was his message. So, what relationship can the temple of God have with idols? None. And then he goes on to say, after having used that example, he specifies something that he had said earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 You are the temple of the living God. You and I are temples of the living God. He dwells in us. The temple was a place in the Old Testament scriptures where the people of God could come and worship their God. And God said to them, when he spoke to Moses, when the tabernacle was built, that the Holy of Holies would be a separate place where only he would reside, and only the high priest could enter into that Holy of Holies just once a year. But that temple was a holy place where God met with his people. They would offer sacrifices, for sin offerings and grain offerings and trespass offerings and free will offerings. All of those were offerings to the Lord that allowed them to come close to Him and have fellowship with Him. Now, the New Testament describes us as being that very temple that was represented by the Old Testament Scriptures. The temple that we are, a house of God, where He dwells, He resides, He is in us and we are his temple that same holiness that he experienced in the wilderness and in Jerusalem when the temple had been finally built there that is what we are those were pictures of what we are that's why he says in again verse 16 adding these words from the word of god as god has said i will dwell in them and walk among them i will be their god and they shall be My people. Quoting from Jeremiah and Ezekiel, talking about the fact that God promised there was coming a day when He will dwell in His people. That's today. That's this present age. That's the church as we now know it, as it has been since the Holy Spirit came down on the day of Pentecost and will always be until the church remains on this earth. He'll walk among us, but He'll dwell in us. He will be our God, and we shall be his people. We are indeed a holy nation, a royal priesthood. We're separated from the world. We're to be in the world, but we're to be not of the world. We are to enjoy the benefits of all the blessings that God has given us. We're pilgrims in this world. We're just passing through. We can enjoy life In this present age, and know that in this world we shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. What great, wonderful promises that are given to us as followers of Jesus Christ, believers in him, having been filled with his Holy Spirit, who dwells now in us to enable us, to strengthen us, to encourage us, to teach us, to guide us, to comfort us. Finally, he says in verse 17, Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Strong words, important words for us to understand that God expects for us not to mingle with unbelievers and make it look as though we are part of the group. We're not. We're separate. We're different. So he says, come out from among them. Be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. So again, he's telling us in no uncertain terms that we must be very careful not to allow ourselves to mingle with unbelievers in a way that causes them to think we're just one of the group, we're one of the family. We're not, we're in the family of God. They are not yet in the family of God, but we want to demonstrate the power of God in our lives to live for Him in a way that pleases Him. In order for them to see, in order to see the light, they must know that there is light. That's why it's so, so very important for us to demonstrate our faith in doing good things that they will observe, that they will be able to say, that man, that woman is a Christian. And I know that they are followers of God because of what they do. Not only because of what they say, but because of what they do. That's what it is here in this passage, a requirement for us, given by the Apostle Paul, to live in such a way as to show or to demonstrate to others who do not believe that we are indeed members of God of a different family. Children of God. He has promised it. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. He has made that promise and he has accomplished that by receiving us into his family, grafting us into himself as his adopted children. What a wonderful blessing it is to know that we can serve our God with such promises as these. So keep the fight Keep strong. Make sure you carry those weapons proudly and keep them before you. Because the shield of faith, again, is necessary to keep the wiles of the enemy, the fiery darts, from harming you. And the sword of the Spirit is there for one purpose and one purpose only, to let him know that you're committed to serving the living Savior. Grace and peace.